It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's What's up, everybody? Welcome back. It is episode 59 of the What's Real podcast. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, my tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jared Bajoris. What's going on, the J? Nice and pumped up this week. Hey, you know, we're a 10-episode countdown to episode 69 of the What's Real podcast, because you know me, <laughs> I'm just a big 41-year-old teenager, so I had to shout that out. But yeah, the big 5'9", man, nice and pumped up this week. The month of the dragon continues. I'm pumped, baby. We got a great show for you guys this week. Of course, as the Jay just mentioned, the month of the dragon continues with Game of Death 1 and Part 2. Um, funny enough, they they basically have nothing to do with each other other than Bruce Lee, but we'll get into that later in the show. Also, we are going to be reviewing the WWE Elimination Chamber pay-per-view that just happened this past Sunday. Uh, and also, we are going to have some goofs for you and much, much more. So uh, let's just get into it, the J. Uh, fuck it. You know what I'm saying? Chop it up, man. Uh, a lot of weird stuff this week, of course. Uh and we mentioned last week on uh, on the show the passing of Vincent Jackson, former NFL player. Uh, apparently, he was passed away in his hotel room for three days. Um, it said, uh, according to SportsIllustrated.com, it said a preliminary medical examiner's report said former NFL wide receiver Vincent Jackson may have been dead for up to three days when he was found in a hotel room in Hillsborough County, Florida, according to Tampa's WFLA News. Uh, he was found by a hotel uh, housekeeper on Monday at approximately 11.30 a.m., and he was 38 years old. Um, they said somebody had entered his room on the 13th and 14th and found Jackson sitting on a couch in a slouch position, assuming he was asleep. Staff grew concerned when they entered the room on the 15th and saw Jackson lying in the same position. Family members reported Jackson missing on February 10th. They checked in the suites on the 11th and spoke to the authorities on the 12th after the county sheriff uh, located him at the hotel. The missing person's report was canceled after officials assessed Jackson's well-being. The exact uh, cause of death is not known, though the preliminary medical report showed no signs of trauma. So that's pretty horrendous. We mentioned, I mean, first and foremost, obviously, it's a shame. Uh, he is a family man, was a great NFL player. And covering it last week, we mentioned how there was very little information at the time with it just happening when we were recording last week. And we mentioned how in this day and age, we were assuming some more info comes out. So here, a week later, some more information is. But still, hey, Ed, seemingly more uh, questions than answers still, because I'm just wondering, like, they don't really say obviously any specifics here on what he was doing in this hotel room himself for days. The the fact that the the police found him and vouched on his well being, but family members like nobody went to see him or anything like that after they reported him missing and they're just like, oh, okay, the authorities found him, he's okay, and he's still in this hotel room. And then for him to just pass away like this it's it's just again just more questions than answers and still a lot of curious curiosity is flowing through me on this still had with this story yeah no i agree and i'm sure we'll have more uh news on this in the upcoming weeks but i just thought it was odd that it was like an odd story last week and this didn't really clear a whole lot up it just kind of complicated the situation like you were alluding to 
and uh, it's weird, but you know, it's a shame too at the same time. And uh, of course, speaking of a shame, um, this was just like breaking news. Again, I feel like we say this on the show every week as we record here on Tuesday. Uh, the Tiger Woods was in a car accident at approximately 7.12 this morning. Uh, you know, uh, LASD responded to a single vehicle rollover traffic collision on the border of Rolling Hills Estates in Rancho Palos Verdes. The vehicle was traveling northbound on Hawthorne Boulevard at Blackburn Road, where it crashed. The vehicle sustained major damage. The driver, of course, was Tiger Woods. Uh, he was extricated from the wreck with the jaws of life by the Los Angeles County firefighters and paramedics, then transported to a local hospital by ambulance for his injuries. And the traffic investigation is being conducted uh, by investigators from LASD Lomita Station. Um, so that's pretty terrible. And uh, it's understood as well, too, that he's since undergone surgery to his legs, I believe. I think I think they said uh, he was rushed to emergency surgery yeah, to to do surgery on his legs. And the last update, one of the last updates that I had seen through TMZ regarding the story hey, uh, was that Tiger was staying at a hotel where a major network television show was being shot. Production sources tell TMZ that when the director of the production arrived just before 7 a.m., Tiger was driving his SUV very fast as he was leaving the property and almost hit the director's car. The director was shaken enough to tell production staff about it after he parked. A crew member who saw Tiger as he got in his SUV at the hotel tells TMZ, once Tiger got in the vehicle, there was a delay in driving off and he appeared agitated and impatient. The crew member says once the delay was over, Tiger took off fast. So another, you know, a lot of questions here in this story too, hey, you know, with this breaking news, but some some pretty crazy shit going on with these these athletes here. Yeah, it's pretty wild, uh, especially a lot of the stuff just breaking news uh, recently. And uh, I guess speaking still kind of on the negative side of things here, uh, the NFL is making significant progress towards implementing a, implementing a 17-game schedule for 2021, which will involve major changes to next year's calendar. Uh, as of the Washington Post, the NFL is looking at a schedule involving a 17-game regular season and a reduction of four preseason games to three for 2021 and beyond. Um, they've been talking about doing this for years. I still think this is kind of a mistake. Um, it's it's just, I, I don't know. I don't get it, really. I, I just think there's going to be more injuries. There's going to be more problems. Um, I think last year kind of showed that the preseason is almost pointless except for like secondary players. So I don't think it's, they need to start working on like a system or something where, you know, like regular players, like dudes that are going to consistently make the team every year or something like that. Don't even get involved in this. Um, there's ways for a lot of these dudes to be ready to play and they don't have to really be involved in preseason games, at least not for long periods of time. We spoke about this particular issue on the pod uh, a while ago. Like you said, they've been talking about this for, for some time. Now it looks like it, it may be set in stone with them moving forward with the 17 week schedule. And uh, as in our prior discussion, Hey Ed, we were mentioning guys like, you know, top tier NFL guys like uh, J.J. Watt in particular, I remember being part of the story and, of course, Aaron Rodgers stating that they were against it. You know, J.J. Uh, Watt in particular, I can remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, the, the, the season's long enough 
for the yeah. grueling sport that, that football, professional football is, then to add another week, it's just more money for the owners and things like that, but isn't necessarily something that's looking out for the safety and health and well-being of the players, of course. No, so, it's strictly a money move. It's, it's strictly a money move. So, you know, we'll have to see what their official decision. This is not official yet, but again, I, I, it looks like they're leaning towards uh, definitively putting this in, in, in play. Yeah. And uh, I also was reading too, like as a side note to this, that um, the NFL is trying to like double their TV contracts. Uh, they're basically trying to make up from a lot of the money that they all missed out on without ticket sales and things this year. So, and they, they already said that like the first one up, I guess would be Disney because they own ABC and like ESPN. And they said that their deal is like insane to begin with. It's already like $1.5 billion. And they're, they're like, there's no way Disney's going to pony up like three and a half billion dollars for the NFL rights for however long, like, and I'm, I'm like, dude, that's just getting, we're getting into like insane numbers when it comes to shit with sports like insane and that's what we said before talking about this as well where it's like like you said due to covid and and ticket sales not not being like any normal regular season in the past of course where these billionaires are like oh well we only profited 1.1 billion this year as opposed to last year in 2019 when we profited 1.5 billion this is ridiculous. We got to do something else, you know? And, and we yep. always say like, how much money do you need? And I get it. But th- then again, it gets to the point, like you said, with some of these astronomical figures that how, you know, how much money do you need? And, and especially in a grueling sport like football, just to not care about the player's health, it seems uh, worrying about money on the side to kind of try to reinvigorate the season and things like that. It, it's just, it's just wild, man. I agreed. So uh, we'll have to see how that works out, but one way or another, I'm not really a fan of the 17 games. I mean, I'll, yeah, watch, it. Am I. I'll watch it, but it's just another strike against the league, in my opinion, that they don't really need. But whatever, it is what it is. Uh, but in some good news, uh, Darcy kind of spilled the beans uh, yesterday accidentally on Twitter, so they decided to put out the news that Joe Bob's last drive-in season three will be getting on April 16th which is fantastic news because that'll give you significant weeks of entertainment if you subscribe to the Shutter app, uh, which we both do. And uh, that's also probably going to be a long period uh, of time that of stuff that we're going to be covering uh, here on the podcast because we kind of did it last season. It worked out pretty well. So I think that it'll give us an opportunity to, to check out and review some kind of oddball stuff here on the show as well. Uh, so that's definitely cool, and I'm definitely looking forward to that. I love it. Big announcement for us. We love covering Joe Bob. We talk about the last drive-in here on the show all the time. So bring on season three. And I, I, I was reading a little bit about that. Hey, how exactly did she spill the beans? Just like in a in a tweet, like just by accident, or somebody deciphered yeah. something? No, it was just an accidental tweet that wasn't meant to go out. And it's like, you know, how does like that she, happen? She, <laughs> I, because people use a lot of shit like for Twitter, like when it comes to like marketing stuff. Yeah, I guess. Use, I mean, like, she's like their marketing. Apps. Yeah. Well, and they use things that are like preset to tweet. So like people will just load up a bunch of content and just space it out time wise, like through these apps and shit. Yeah, I get it. And it's like they just put something that was they just entered it in wrong so basically it went out when it wasn't supposed to but they quickly caught it and took it down i missed it i just heard about what it was 
So at the same time, I just thought that was kind of cool though. And hey, I mean, it's in April, so like that's what I mean. I don't think it's, it's right. a bad idea to start, you know, getting some publicity out for it now. Yeah, it's right around the corner. It's not like she did it for something that was happening in August or something like that. Yeah. So who knows? But uh, dude, now this is something else that I thought was pretty interesting uh, that I was just happened to be reading. And I sent this along to you. Uh, it's it's an article from Insider.com about a Columbia professor who uses heroin and says the drug helps him maintain a work-life balance and should be legal for everyone. Uh, this is Dr. Carl Hart. He's a psychology professor at Columbia University. Um, he has studied psychoactive drugs for more than three decades. Uh, he has a new book that lays out why he thinks uh, all drugs should be legal. Uh, and other experts stress limiting supply and putting more limits on big drug companies could also help. But it was just an interesting article about this guy um, who was a tenured professor at Columbia University and well over 40 years old who decided to start using heroin all the time. Not all the time. Like it's, you know, I'm not trying to misrepresent the article about him. It's pretty interesting read. Did you get to check this out? One thing that I thought uh, was another really interesting aspect of this article, Hey Ed, was that Hart, who, as you mentioned, was a psychology professor and neuroscience expert, had already worked legally with drugs, and these included marijuana, cocaine, and heroin for more than 25 years, studying drug users and seeking to answer questions about the threats drug pose to both mental and physical health. And for the most, most of that time, he says he was set on proving one point, drugs are bad. But now, after even further research and some more time and, and certain progress, he wishes he could do them legally and that you could too. In a quote here, he says that my heroin use is as recreational as my alcohol use, like vacation, sex, and the arts. Heroin is one of the tools that I use to maintain my work-life balance, which kind of brings up to me, there's aspects of this that we would always say, you just hear all the horror stories and, and for good reason of people dying from overdoses and people whose lives and their families' lives are destroyed from their addictions and things like that. What you don't hear about is people that that are the, as they call them, functioning addicts and people that, that might use heroin on a, on a recreational basis, as he's saying, which to some people, even myself, it is tough to put my like mind around in certain ways, but the older I get, the more experiences I have, you kind of get more and more open-minded and you can kind of see that it's something that sounds so insane of somebody saying that heroin should be legal and I use it to maintain my work-life balance when you can really think about it and kind of say, okay, let me kind of break it down and see the specifics on that and how that maybe could be. Because another, another thing that I've heard talked about on the Joe Rogan podcast and in particular comedian, um, Ron white of all people, he's one of those people that he uses mushrooms in, in the same sort of fashion in, in what they call microdosing, And it makes him feel better, like, in, you know, mental health wise in a positive way. So there's a lot more to this, and there's this is a, something that we can talk about for hours upon because it's so interesting, and there's so much to it. But just specifically with this article uh, that you had sent me, hey, Ant, which I appreciate and reading through it, man, does it bring up a ton of in interesting points and what could be a ton of future conversations to be had. Yeah, and of course, it's like a lot of things, just like, you know, uh, somebody might not like to drink alcohol or somebody that doesn't like a certain type of food. It doesn't mean just because it's legal, everybody and their mother's going to do it. Um, and it would have to be regulated to the point where, you know, 
it's not just available anywhere for anybody to do at any time, like things like that, but still it does raise a lot of good points. It's interesting. It's just a thought provoking article kind of a deal that I thought would be uh, interesting to bring up here on the show, Uh, regardless if you disagree or agree with it. I think that there's a ton of really good points that, you know, you could get into that this article brings up from someone that uses it and seems to use it in a way that most people don't. Yeah, it's 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 something again that uh, initially you just might write off as like somebody you know something that like if this was brought up in the '90s or something you know what I mean you're just like yeah right like you know most people just would brush that off like legalize heroin you know get out of here with that but again with where we're at with evolution and learning about things and uh, again if it's something that can be done recreationally and in a positive way as much as something like this might've been thought to be absolutely crazy 15 years ago. Now you might kind of see like, okay, this, this could be something that can, can happen, you know, and it might, it might help people in the the end, as opposed to people ODing and it causing like all these problems in their lives. And dude, it's, uh, it's also on the other token of things, just uh, talking about drugs uh, I don't know if you saw this or not, but wife of El Chapo was arrested on drug trafficking charges at Washington, D.C. area airport. Emma Coronel Aspiro, 31, is accused of conspiring to help distribute cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, and marijuana in the United States. Um, so that's, I mean, surprising, but not surprising. Yeah, the the wife just takes over the reins of the kingdom here, hate y'all. And, uh, you know, they, they might say with kids, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But with this one, the, the wife doesn't fall far from the tree. She just took over. And, and yeah, it's like, uh, I guess we can't be too surprised that the wife of Al Chapo was, was kind of just taking taking the reins and doing the same thing and, and now got busted for, for the same thing her husband did. Yeah, I mean, that family's fucking relentless. I I almost, like, got to give them some kind of respect regardless. Yeah, in a weird <laughs> it's way. Like yeah, it's like, Jesus, that, that they refuse to lose legitimately in life. It's just, yeah, uh, crazy story. And just, to, you know, I knew that that would be something that would just be for, for kind of a chuckle. But uh, did you get a chance to read this Rolling Stone article? Uh, it's kind of random that it would be Rolling Stone. It's not for, it's Rolling Stone online. It's uh, an article called why were there so many serial killers between 1970 and the year 2000 and where did they go? Yeah, I did. And it's very, very interesting because it coincided with the re- release of the Netflix docuseries about the um, night stalker. Yep. Because they, they interviewed Gil, uh, the detective, um, you know, Gil, Carrillo from the Night Stalker doc, you know, he has a couple quotes in this particular article. And what it did for me personally, hey, Ed, was with the introduction of the Night Stalker uh, docuseries and me and you both talked about it off the air of both checking it out and thinking it was pretty good and interesting. It, it created a kind of spark with me to get into some true crime, which I'm not typically a big true crime guy. Uh, I love docs and different things and I find it interesting. And I guess like so many things we talk about, especially with personalities like ours that have so many interests, it has to be a mood thing. 
But just yeah. this particular, again, like kind of spark with the Night Stalker got me on a, on watching a string of true crime um, docu-series and documentaries. And it all started with the Night Stalker. And that's kind of what this article breaks down. And like you mentioned, in particular, the fact that there was just a particular time frame here with serial killers and, and why that changed and it's basically you know there's it's like anything it's complicated and there's a lot of issues it's not black and white it's a gray thing just from the, the beginning of the article how it talks about sociological changes to biology to technology to linguistics but i think that's a big thing right there kind of to layman's terms it hey ed that where did the serial killers go a big to do is technology there are so many cameras now. There are so many home security systems. There's these ring apps. You can watch your the outside of your house from your phone now. So that has a big, you know, that put a damper on serial killing. That's for sure. Well, do, there's a crime historian in the article that they talked to uh, named Harold Schechner. And he said the reason behind this is manifold, encompassing everything from sociological changes to biology to technology to linguistics. So you're actually kind of on to something there. Uh, and it's a mixture of all this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, whenever this time period that, you know, this was going on, basically, uh, they said they were looking at the world like, you know, every one of these guys was born during a wartime thing. So they thought that was the case. But then they figured out that that wasn't necessarily the case. It was a mixture of things where it was like people from, uh, you know, veterans with PTSD would be their parents. Uh, or have like a, a alcoholic mother or, or a, just a mother that didn't want to deal with their children. And like this kind of combination of things led to the child being this way. And they even said that one of the biggest reasons why Richard Ramirez was the way that he was is because he got a frontal lobe injury as like a two-year-old that was never treated. Like he just hit his head off a table and the, the parents never did anything about it. You know, like they thought he was fine, but like he actually had a brain injury and that's a big reason why he ended up being the way that he was. Um, they, the one thing that I found really interesting, because, again, I find some true crime stuff to be really interesting, uh, even though I think a lot of these people are total shitbags. Um, but whenever you, you would hear about this stuff or you would read stuff, you would see that it was always exclusively men that were serial killers. And this article kind of breaks down that that wasn't necessarily the case. It's just that women serial killers are different. Like how they say like men are hunters and women are gatherers. So like they said, the male serial killers were like, you know, the ones that we all know of, but the female ones were different. They would be like nurses that would like kill a bunch of people or they would get someone else to do it in like a Manson-esque kind of manner, like because women are, you know, they can manipulate people into doing things for them. Not that men can't, but that's just more of the type of female serial killer. And they, they mentioned how you only ever hear of Eileen Warnos, which they made the movie about, which Charlize Theron played her. Uh, but like stuff like that. And I just thought that was really interesting. And they said, when you compare it that way, the numbers are about equal. And that's just something that we didn't know years ago because everything was categorized specifically in a way that would deter you from getting that kind of data. Right. Yeah. It said it was images of white serial killers and white victims, but that only 51% of serial killers from 1970 to 2000 were white. And as they state in the article, the primary reason we don't hear about, say, African-American serial killers, for example, more, especially from the 70s to the 90s, is that the issue of, of who the victims were. 
because although not always, murders in general tend to occur within the racial group of the murdered. So as such, black serial killers often targeted non-white victims who didn't get the same coverage in the news media due to the inherent racism of the time. So, you know, they bring up specifically, look at the Atlanta child murders, a series of yep. crimes at the end of the 70s in which nearly 30 largely black children and adults were killed. Wayne Williams was arrested and convicted for two of the adult murders in 1982, still maintains his innocent when it comes to the rest, but that the case was that had been languished for decades until just last year in 2019, a couple years ago, when Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms ordered it reopened so that DNA could be tested using the most recent technology, which again coincides with one of the factors we were saying with the evolution of technology as well, kind of putting a damper on on being able to pull off being a serial killer in you know 2019 and beyond. And it, it also mentions in the article too, uh, they were talking about uh, certain police officers and this guy said that it, starting in 1990, he, he saw that like serial cases focused generally on sex workers. The predator shifted to sex workers out in the street, a ready pool of victims who would voluntarily get into cars and generally wouldn't be looked for if they disappeared. Those cases are often not as well known as the numbers or as the murders committed by Bundy and the like. As sex workers got savvier, and that victim pool began to shrink as well. Serial killers shifted online. Case in point, the Craigslist killer, Philip Haynes Markov, who was suspected, although not convicted, of three robberies and one murder. He was indicted for the murder of a masseuse he met on Craigslist in 2009, but he killed himself in 2010 before he could go to trial. So they're showing you even with things like we're saying like technology, certain cameras and things, how people, you know, there's a million deterrents, but now there's also new different ways people could be taken advantage of. So it's also weird how it all kind of shifts around differently. And these, because, you know, these certain character types have to maneuver in the, the world around them. And a lot of them are like survivalist kind of minded people, even if they don't realize it. Yeah. Subconsciously. Um, yeah, so they just generally will find their way through and in and out of things that, you know, it, it because we don't watch everything 100% 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, it's like anytime, as soon as you let your guard down, you know, that could be when something happens, of course. But yeah, super, super interesting article. Uh, they even interviewed uh, one of the detectives that was uh, involved in the Golden State Killer case. And that was one um, based on, a HBO documentary series that I fell into too, too which coincides with the crew tri true crime kind of uh, obsession I fell into over the past few weeks after watching the Night Stalker thing like I was talking about. And that was called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. and was a docu-series on HBO about Patton Oswald, the comedian, uh, his oh, former yeah. wife that passed away. She was like a, a web sleuth, they called him, and a really prolific, really good writer. And she actually was like so obsessed with this case online that she ended up leading the the charge to eventually find the golden state killer that had eluded police for decades. And that, yep. you know, anybody interested uh, on HBO um, I'll be gone in the dark was just a super interesting, you know, HBO it's docs good. don't get any, yeah. Like it doesn't get any better than that. It's really good. Really interesting with that. But yeah, again, Hey, I appreciate the, the interesting article. Um, good podcast fodder, but uh, as dark as it is, I think that's the the human curiosity of falling into being interested in true crime 
is like, what, yeah, why does somebody become a serial killer? How? And they kind of answer it uh, just in this little article that was a breezy read, you know, really well put together. So for anybody listening, you know, like Ed said, it's a Rolling Stone article uh, titled, why were there so many serial killers between 1970 and 2000 and where did they go? Yeah, really cool read. Uh, definitely recommend it if you get the time to check it out. Uh, also, uh, a couple other notes. Uh, it seems that uh, Pittsburgh Steelers coach Mike Tomlin has come down with a case of COVID-19. Um, he's apparently doing well. Uh, he said very mild symptoms at this point. But, you know, just a reminder, guys, you know, hope everybody out there is doing well. You know what I'm saying? Uh, not much else to say in that regard other than, you know, like if you're trying to get a vaccine, hope you get one. If, you know, if you're uh going out, wear your mask, be smart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a good example too, Hey Ed, because the season's been over for a while. He was doing all that traveling, was around all those people within the protocol of the NFL for an entire season and was just diagnosed in the off season here. So, you know, it's yep. not, it's not over yet folks. And I hate to, to say it as well. Like we all hate this shit, but we just got to keep being patient as hard as that is. And, and we're almost there. I'm hoping, Hey, you know, I'm knocking on wood. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's still around and, and Mike Tomlin is, you know, thank God, like you mentioned, is one of those cases that it's just mild symptoms and, and nothing uh, tragic or life threatening or anything like that, which was good to hear. And uh, also another interesting article for Steeler fans this week, uh, something that, that uh, we were checking out on steelcurtain.com. Uh, they were talking about five potential free agents the Steelers could sign. Now, these aren't any really big name people, but there are some interesting players on here, I thought. Uh, I don't know if, did you get a chance to check this out at all, DJ? Yep. You know me, I'm a former Eagle scout or always an Eagle scout. I prep, be prepared. We always said, Hey, y'all. One of them I thought was pretty interesting was Raekwon McMillan, uh, middle linebacker from the Raiders, um, because obviously they need some help there. Kelvin Beecham was another one I thought was good. Another former Steeler because they're going to need some cheap offensive linemen. Uh, Willie Sneed, wide receiver uh, from Baltimore, who I, I, I'm not so big on that one. Uh, but I like Desmond King from the Titans. That's probably one of my favorite ones out of these. Um, but I like, I mean, they're going to have to dip into free agency at least to get some backups and other guys that can play some time because they're not going to get, you know, potentially 20 guys in the draft that they need. Yeah, they have a ton of holes, and we've been mentioning more than anything on offense. So, like you mentioned, the the, the offensive linemen, uh, that's always good to hear because we're going to need that, especially it was made official that Pouncey 100% retired. I mean, we were 99% yeah. sure, but he made that official the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, a lot of rebuilding to do, hey, yeah, but, but yeah, some interesting possible guys. So we'll see what happens here in the offseason with who we pick up. Yeah, I mean, these dudes are, are pretty interesting. You know what I mean? I think there's a, a few good choices in here. Um, it's going to be interesting to see where they draft to because I th- I, th- I have a funny feeling that uh, a lot of these, you know, people that like p- predict the draft and shit like that, like I don't think they, they know what they're doing uh, on these ones. I think the Steelers are probably just going to go with offensive line and shit. Cause they have to rebuild the line. Like that's immediate. That's yeah. an immediate. It's, it's not glamorous or anything like that, but they absolutely yeah. need it. It's the highest priority. That's for sure. Yep. So cool article nonetheless. Uh, and also to uh, in the world of wrestling, uh, some pretty interesting and kind of out of nowhere news. There's a lot of stuff that, uh, that I've been seeing lately. That's kind of like this first up, just real quick note that I saw. I noticed this is how they're doing this and it's pretty weird. Um, but did you see that WrestleMania this year is exclusive to Peacock? 
Yeah. So what does that entail? Is just I, that's all they said. And I'm, I'm I purposely did this uh, like ever since they they announced the the partnership with Peacock. I thought everything was pretty vague. And I'm kind of playing it that way. Like, I'm not trying to find out really hard what's going on. I'm like trying to be a normal person on this and see what it seems like to me. And they're doing a horrible job early. Yeah, that's how I feel too. I just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm making the assumption that if you have Peacock, then the WWE Network is obviously just on on there as, are they still calling it the WWE Network? I mean, it is confusing, man. I, yeah, I guess it's just through another portal. So you'd have to like go to Peacock and then open up the WWE network app in Peacock and then watch it from there. Well, you have to see about the cock. Hate y'all. Yeah. Ugh. Or not. That's the question. So I don't know. It's just kind of weird, but also, uh, but AEW and, uh, or AEW, what the fuck am I talking about? WWE and A&E are working together. Uh, which is pretty cool news. Um, they have a whole slew of like different stuff that they're doing, like different. I, what did you say the number was to Jay? Forgive me here because I lost my link. Like, oh, no, no problem. Yeah, so they're doing uh, eight uh, episodes of varying wrestlers, like biographies, because it's it's under the A and E's award winning biography banner, and they're going to be eight two hour documentaries. So the wrestlers include Stone Cold Steve Austin. Macho Man Randy Savage, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Booker T, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, Mick Foley, and the Ultimate Warrior. So this sounds so, really cool. Yeah, I okay, I did pick it up here. It says, it's worth noting that these documentaries are produced by WWE Studios, so they'll be kayfabe of a sort. For example, don't expect to see the Steve Austin biography talked about him pleading no contest to beating his wife. Uh, or seeing the ultimate warrior talking about how oh, queering God. don't make the world work. Like I, this is the greatest link, by the way, it's on bleedingcool.com that I'm reading about this. So, uh, but nonetheless, it's still cool that they're doing it. And there's always potential of doing more stuff uh, if that's the case, but like, boy, they're, they're dipping their hands in the pool with everybody these days with like, we just mentioned the peacock thing. Now they're working with A&E. Hey, we said desperate times call for desperate measures and the state of the world created a, an abundance of, of unique kind of opportunities for, you know, varying things to take, especially some, something as big as like corporate WWE. Uh, Another interesting part of this, Hey Ed was uh, these are going to start airing at 8 PM beginning Sunday, April 18th on A&E. And following the documentary show that we were just discussing at 10 p.m., there's another brand new series called WWE's Most Wanted Treasures. And this is going to be led by Stephanie McMahon and Paul Triple H Lavelle as they launch a hunt (laughs) for some of WWE's most iconic missing memorabilia, including Kane's original mask, Ric Flair's butterfly robe, Andy Kaufman's neck brace, Andre the Giant's passport, so that sounds pretty interesting for us wrestling nerds to to check out kind of like a bit of an off the wall kind of show like that. Yeah, I definitely would be interested in something like that, especially uh, just to see some of that stuff. It's just really cool. Yeah, there used to be there used to be a thing. I want to say it was on YouTube. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, uh, but there used to be a guy who would be he would go to the WWE headquarters and he would like show you yeah. all the shit they have in storage. 
Like that was a really cool show. I, I wish they would have kept that. up with doing something like that because I always got a kick out of that stuff. They'd show you like, of course, stuff you'd expect, like people's old outfits and shit. But then they would show you like, you know, WrestleMania signs that they still have and like old school, like the old flags they used to hang above the ring and shit. So I always thought that was really cool. From what I remember, there was one with him and Foley and he was taking them to the, the original Hell in the Cell cage. Yeah. Yep. It was like all yep. like fully like seriously got emotional because, you know, obviously, you know, but seeing that again and stuff. So. So, yeah, some some pretty cool news, man. Like like I've been thoroughly saying, I, I'm definitely in the documentaries and I I get on specific documentary like moods, you know, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. And once again, it's something that's pretty much right around the corner here to going towards the end of February. And it's uh, premiering in April. And as we come up on our break here, first break of the show, which when we come by back after that break, we're going to check out some Elimination Chamber 2021. Uh, but just before we do that, another cool wrestling note. Uh, there's a Disney Channel show called Ultraviolet and Blue Demon. And Blue Demon Jr. is an actual Mexican wrestler, a luchador. Um, and he refused to remove his mask for the entirety of the production uh, even in front of executives for, for the Disney channel and everything. And I just thought that was really fucking cool. Uh, Cause apparently, uh, you know, people could say they know their shit about luchadors, but like, if you don't, if you're making this show and you don't know that they don't necessarily take their mask off, then uh, it's about time, you know, oh, I love this dude. So cool. Like, like you mentioned, these freaking executives putting all this money in there, their star, one of the two stars of the show, they don't even know what he looks like in real life. Because yep. that's how much he sticks to the the tradition of lucha libre, which is awesome. You, you know, our asses love that. One of the yeah. like, off the wall, like weird kind of things that really did well with that. Actually, of all things, was um, Nacho Libre with Jack Black. Oh, it's, they, I haven't seen that in forever. Yeah, they like had the Blue Demon type character. You know, that was made up for the movie, but he was definitely based on maybe not the Blue Demon. Um, was it? Would it be maybe Mil, Mil Mascaris? Santo. Santo, like one of those guys it was loosely based on, but it was probably the same a kind mixture of, of all of them. Yeah, he, yeah <laughs> exactly. But he never, he never would take the mask off. And, and that's a Lucha Libre tradition. And that was really cool to hear within the executive offices and, you know, the, the machine that is Disney, he's still sticking to his business's roots and, you know, no matter what, not taking the mask off and revealing his identity and stuff. It's really cool. Yeah. I thought that was awesome. So uh, it is time for us to take our first break of the show. And as I mentioned earlier, when we come back, we're going to be talking some Elimination Chamber 2021. So hang tight, everybody. We'll be back right after this on the What's Real podcast. Want to advertise on the What's Real podcast? Send us an email today. Just title your email ads at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. For cheap, easy, and affordable rates, contact us today. Again, that's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Would you like to advertise? Send us an email today. In an old industrial town, a homeless man roams the streets looking for a place to rest when he comes across a young girl in danger. He runs to her aid, and as a kind gesture, she leads him to a homeless village where he is inspired by the friendships he makes there. Soon, he finds himself involved in the search for a serial killer while running afoul of lead detectives. The Unsung, available now for rent to own on Amazon Prime. And go to churchillpictures.com for more information.
And we're back here on the show, and it is time to get into some Elimination Chamber uh, from this past Sunday, February 21st, at St. Petersburg, Florida's Tropicana Field, with zero in attendance, of course. Uh, And this show, uh, man, I I even said this to the Jay, because as you guys know, if you listen all the time, we tend to do the previews of pay-per-views like the week before. And, uh, you know, we did this one last week and boy, did this show end up way different than the way we previewed it. And it really kind of sucks to have to do that. So I apologize to anybody that's like confused if that confused anyone. Uh, But yeah, it's not our fault that this company has no idea what they're doing. So first up, uh, it should be mentioned that Keith Lee uh, was not ready to go for the three-way for the United States uh, title uh, against Bobby Lashley, the champion, and also Matt Riddle. Um, so they had a match to decide, uh, this is on the pre-show, to decide who would be the replacement for him in a fatal four-way. It went seven minutes and ten seconds, so that's, you know, real vote of confidence for this one. Uh, John Morrison defeated Elias Mustafa Ali and Ricochet, and I didn't see this match because I don't watch the fucking pre-show, I'll just be honest with you. Um, so whenever I started watching the show, this is like one of the first things that I saw, so... I don't know if you caught this or not, but there you go. John Morrison is now taking uh, the place of Keith Lee. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. If I have the time and I'm sitting there with my son, dependent on where we're at in our day, I, you know, obviously throw it on if it's there. But that wasn't the case. We were like just ready around eight when the, the actual show started. So I did miss this. And as usual, like you said, dude, I was just completely confused because I I didn't know like you mentioned that they were doing the, the Keith Lee was put out by Bobby Lashley thing and they had to fill the spot. And then, you know, just to round out our fact checking from last week, as you alluded to, Hey, you know, where uh, Lacey Evans, we were talking about her and Oscar's oh, yeah. match. And I was like, so confused, like asking you straight up, like, what are they doing with the storyline pregnancy? Then it turns out she isn't in a storyline pregnancy. She really is actually pregnant in real life. So we find that out in the last week. So yep. there's that. <laughs> so. so the Oscar match is off. So that's they, off completely. And they don't even rebook that. Uh, but they did add a match. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a little bit here. So the pay-per-view started out uh, with the Elimination Chamber match for an immediate WWE Universal Championship match. It went 34 minutes and 20 seconds. And we saw Daniel Bryan defeat Cesaro, Jay Uso, Kevin Owens, Kev- King Corbin, and Sami Zayn. Uh, Pretty good match, uh, but I think it was pretty evident from early on that Daniel Bryan was most likely going to win. I I felt like they tried to give Cesaro a little bit of a rub there, too, like it could have been him, but it didn't feel like anybody else was even going to come close to winning this one. It was a good match, but it was pretty anticlimactic. Anticlimactic, but yeah, my son and I really enjoyed this. We were kind of going nuts at certain points. Some really good spots. Just uh, we, we, we said that in the preview. I mean, great, great athletes because the worst athlete in this was pretty much Corbin. But as we both said, he does his thing as a heel, especially in a match with this many other personalities and things like that. He fits in fine and, and he's like the worst part about it. So it kind of works out. Uh, but yeah, yeah, some really good spots, uh, of course, using the, the chamber and shutting the door on uh, Jay Uso, like the chamber door on his shoulder and stuff like that. Um, what other spots did I like? You know, some of the stuff Daniel Bryan was doing, of course, was good. Uh, Jay, Jay Uso, I love how he is as a singles wrestler. Yeah, he's and, good. And he's, I like He's Jay. really good. He's, and he stood, stood out in this, so he did a really good job. 
And in our preview, because hey, Ilton and Jay know what the fuck we're talking about, we both called that most likely Daniel Bryan will be going over in this match, and that's exactly what happened with the Busaki knee at thirty, almost thirty-five minutes. So good time too. But yeah, enjoyed enjoyed this chamber match, hey, Ilton. Same here, and uh, this is kind of where everything got stalled. I would say uh, there was uh, Roman Reigns would come out and face Daniel Bryan, and he would beat him. Uh, in defending his title in a minute and 32 seconds uh, in a way that I understand what they're doing. Uh, that's kind of why they did the thing the week before with uh, Daniel Bryan and edge on TV uh, where they kind of like talked to each other and said like, you know, like, welcome back, welcome back kind of a thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. blah. And they're trying to run that angle that like, you know, he beat the living hell out of Daniel Bryan and he's going to do the same thing in, to edge at WrestleMania. And I get the storyline, but I, I just wish they would have given us a match here. I don't care that Daniel Bryan lost. Uh, I just would have liked to see like at least like a 10 minute match would have been cool. Um, but, and you know, Daniel, Daniel Bryan could do that, but they're just so committed to the Roman character, just being this purely dominating force that, uh, you know, I get it, but I still don't like it. That, that's what I actually mentioned in the preview that I thought, Daniel Bryan was going to go over in the chamber and that they were going to main event with Roman Reigns defending the title against them. But of course, you know, which, which was to protect Daniel Bryan, I guess, in certain ways in his character, like you and I never care about that stuff, but within WWE storylines, Daniel Bryan, of course, just going through a grueling, like we mentioned, almost 35 minute chamber match. And then Roman Reigns just coming right out, you know, he's not going to be able to do much. So that was, that was kind of their point on this. Yeah, so it was a little disappointing, but I get why they did it, but whatever. Uh, like I said, I get it, but I don't like it. So uh, next up, we had the triple threat match for the WWE. United My bad. States. Hey, um, do you want to mention who comes out, though, right right here? I don't even remember. Edge. Oh, I totally forgot about this. Yeah, so I wanted to catch you. Yeah, he like, was totally. Roman was on the ropes, and he turned around and got speared by Edge. Yeah, so it's pretty clear at this point that they're wrestling at WrestleMania. It showed, dude, that shows you how blacked out on the show <laughs> yeah. I kind of was earlier. That's on, some good weed. Well, no, 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 no. I actually had. I know, I'm, just, of, I'm just fucking around. Well, no, this, I didn't even mention this to you, but I had a ton of fucking problems with this show. Oh, like, it, on like the network. There was, yeah, there was just a ton of stopping and pausing, and like I had to like keep fucking with it to get it to work. I hate and, that. It's yeah, it was pretty annoying and it's this is the worst it's been for a show for me in a long time. So I was like pretty annoyed by that, but whatever, I made it through. Like I'm I'm getting to the point here where I have to essentially watch the pay-per-view exactly as it starts or I just have to wait until it's over. Yeah. And I watched this I tried to watch it about as live as I could and it caused me a ton of problems. So that was annoying, but whatever. Uh nonetheless so yeah, it's like shit like that. I'm like, it doesn't, it has no effect on me because at this point I'm probably annoyed as pissed that it keeps stopping and shit. So there you go. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it, it affects your enjoyability of the show for sure. Uh, I'll say that much. Um, but next we had the triple threat match for the United States championship and a pretty fun match that, that uh, lasted about eight minutes and 40 seconds. We saw Riddle win the United States championship from Bobby Lashley and as well over John Morrison, who we got the pin on. Uh, this was pretty fun. Um, this is kind of the beginning of them pushing Lashley is like this unstoppable force. Cause you got Morrison and Riddle working together to beat him. 
And it's kind of funny, like, I don't have a problem with them booking Lashley like that, but then that means that you have to forget the last two and a half years of how they booked Lashley to, like, yeah. for this to work. So that kind of sucks. Uh, but it is what it is. And uh, it was okay. I liked the match. It was fun. I wish it would have been a little bit longer, but I thought even Lashley, I thought, did pretty well. But, you know, the guys he's working with are all pretty good. For me, this was one of those ones that I had no expectations going in because, as we said, I didn't even really know what the fuck was going going on with Keith Lee and everything until the the show started. So yeah, it kind of just jumps on the card and they start they you know get going. And I, I definitely like the story frame of the match being that Morrison and Riddle realize they got to team up, like you mentioned, against Lashley. So that kind of set up a, a story t- you know telling aspect to the match and um, the finish what Morrison like kind of got an MVP's face. So, you know, then um, the hurt lock got put on riddle and the crutch got involved and then riddle like planted Morrison. And what does he call that move? The, cause I like that. It's like funny. The, the, the bro, bro Derek, Derek. The bro Derek. Yeah. <laughs> to like, you know, a little under the 10 minute mark. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, for, for like, like we say, kind of a 10 minute U S title match, it's what you would expect. So when it's not a complete train wreck, you, you, know, you kind of got to accept that as part of the card and, and it wasn't bad. Yeah. And they gave you a new champ. And I thought that that was kind of cool too. Cause I think that people have kind of been pushing for, for riddle to do something, but it's, and for once they actually did the right thing because they were trying to push Lashley to the main event. And what they did was they had riddle take the belt off him by beating Morrison and it kind of pushes Riddle up, and it pushes Lashley up. And, yeah, now they're and, strapping a rocket ship to him. Yeah, and uh, and we'll get into that as the show goes on. Next up yep. is the match that they just added, uh, and it's for the WWE Women's Tag Team Championship. And in nine and a half minutes, we saw Nia Jax and Baszler defeat Bianca Belair and Sasha Banks, which you kind of expected, I would think. Um, decent little match, but, like, I don't know. It's, this is just more filler stuff from them, like something for basically Sasha and, and Bianca to do before they probably wrestle each other at WrestleMania. Yeah, and it's it's kind of screwing up certain singles matches because I think Bianca and Shayna could have like a good feud that would so lead to like the winner of that getting the, the, the next title shot in singles. And and we, we all know how we feel about her whole her wholeness. Nia Jax, yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't anything, you know, of course, groundbreaking by any means. It was what it was. And of course, like, again, nothing more than 10 minutes. So I'll take it for what it was. And they needed to fill something in for, as we've already discussed, the Oscar and Lacey Evans situation. So I think that's why they threw this on the card, but yeah, nothing special. I mean, if we're going to buy five-star ratings, I'd give this one like two, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, you can, it's very skippable basically. And, uh, and now we go into the final segment of the pay-per-view, which was, uh, I would say, probably about like 32 minutes or so uh, of the Elimination Chamber and uh, a little surprise that wasn't much of a surprise. But uh, we saw Drew McIntyre uh, win the Elimination Chamber in 31 minutes and 10 seconds, defeating AJ Styles, Jeff Hardy, Kofi Kingston, Randy Orton, and Sheamus, and... Uh, Okay, so you had the shit with Randy Orton, which I'm so over this. It's why it, I don't know, whatever. I don't care that he's basically feuding with Alexa Bliss right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's weird. Um, and the there. Okay, here's the problem that I have with this match, right? Like McIntyre's the champ, so obviously you would take him seriously. Okay, I still take AJ seriously. He's pretty good, uh, especially with that almost dude, like. 
AJ's on the level of pretty much anybody with that. You know what I'm saying? And then Kofi's pretty good. Like, he, he does what he needs to do to fill in. And even though with Sheamus, he's like, they're overshooting him at this point. Like, he's too fucking good for what he is. And Hardy is just, like, kind of a mess at this point. Um, so this match was weird, but it's pretty, again, like, you you had a really good idea what was going to happen anyway. And that's exactly how it ended. And then because when of when the show ended, you I at least I did anyway, thought that you were going to see what actually happened. I got my first notes. I, I have to mention at the outset where, of course, everybody has their entrances and the, the guys that didn't draw the to be starting the match, of course, come out first and go in their pods. So all the dudes are in their pods when Orton comes out. And everybody's like talking shit on Orton because he's like the top raw heel or whatever right now. Uh, and there was some funny shit, but in particular, Kofi had me dying. He's like, you could, you know, you could hear him without the the live audience and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and he's like, you know, what are you slithering? Oh, I see your quads. You've been doing some squats. You know, he's like talking about his muscular quads and stuff, just like talking shit. So, you know, stupid little thing, but I thought that was funny to, to start the show. But yeah, like you said, I mean, there was some good, good action. There's some good spots. Uh, you got some really athletic guys. I like the fact that AJ, you know, was was uh, next to last to to go, and uh, they did some cool shit to end it. The midair claymore to finish was awesome. My and son went I, nuts for that. And I saw them. That was the kind of thing that was like I saw them doing that, like before it happened. But like when they and you're did still it, like, it was damn. It it was better than yeah what I remember. So I was like, dude, that's pretty crazy. Like, so they did a really good job on that. The match was really good. And then, of course, because they did, they showed you a thing before the match earlier in the show with The Miz and Bobby Lashley just kind of talking backstage. So you kind of knew what that happened, what was going on there. Uh, They they mentioned it a couple times about the money in the bank. So it, it was kind of fresh in your mind. And to think about this, dude, that Miz had that, money in the bank for a year long yeah a long ass time and that's why we have different perspectives uh bringing up on the the review here which is cool because you caught that and you got the wrestling mind so you were able to predict it i didn't catch that exchange between miz and lashley so again watching it with my son i just wasn't even thinking about the miz so i actually popped for him i go shit he's coming down and i i just was still thinking with wrestlemania looming that mcintyre was going to survive the miz which you know didn't didn't happen. Yeah. I was really surprised with that to begin with, uh, that they were, you know, thinking about doing it, but you could tell they're kind of confused where they want to go with mania. So basically what happened is the Miz came out, won the title from Drew McIntyre after Bobby Lashley came out and just decimated McIntyre after the, you know, that's twice in one night where they took advantage of somebody being through the, the chamber match. Um, so it, it was what it was. So Miz was the champ, and of course they followed that up on Raw. I don't know if you, did you have a chance to watch Raw at all? No, no. Uh, yeah, they basically set it up at the beginning of the show where Bobby Lashley was like, "You got a half hour to get your shit together and give me my match, and come out and tell me that you're giving me the match. And if you don't, like, you're gonna pay for it, kind of a thing." So they're doing like Lashley is the big bully of the show, shit. And Miz basically came out and said he needs more time. And then Strowman comes out 
and was like, I don't give a shit. I want the, the match tonight. Nobody else should get it, whatever, whatever. So then Shane comes out and then he basically makes Lashley and Strowman. And if Strowman wins, he gets added to the three-way next week. So it's Miz defending next week against Strowman and Lashley. And that's what's happening. So and there is, there is one more pay-per-view before mania as well. Yeah. I forget the name of it, but it's, I think it's on March 31st. So yeah, it's, it's like, like a right week before, before it's really mania. weird. It's really I remember weird. that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why they're doing that. And that's certainly going to be another shitty placeholder show. I would think so. I don't know. Fast lane. I think they're still keeping it as fast lane. Yeah. That's yeah. probably what yeah, it March is. March 21st. I, uh, oh, the 21st. My bad. I thought it was the yeah. 31st, but still a stupid idea. I don't want to see it at all, but it is what it is, you know? Crazy. But yeah, I mean, I, as I think the pacing of the show, because I think it was clocked in the total show elimination chamber at two and a half hours. Dude, and it's, it was their shortest show in, ever. Uh, second shortest show in the last 20 years. They say. And, and I have to say, and, and trust me, man, we, we, you know, we call out what we need to call out, but I still love the WWE. Uh, but that actually helped it, I felt, because it just was paced well, especially bookended by the two Elimination Chamber matches that were both good. It went pretty quick for me. Yeah, and I think, I, you know, again, like the, the filler stuff's always the filler stuff. I'm not going to praise that by any means, but it was what it was. And unfortunately, that's kind of how you got to watch WWE, the overall product, a lot, especially the pay-per-views, is that there was no like complete duds. So, you know, it, uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't the worst. Dude, th- this is kind of the problem for me with this show is it felt like everybody was working hard and there was good matches and everything, but nothing felt like it mattered at all. Yeah, like, well, as you said, going into it, the storylines are so muddled and there's so many people involved with the big chamber matches that, yeah, you couldn't really I mean, dude, get behind it, anything. It doesn't feel like a human book, this show. It, feel, it feels like this is a show book yes. by like the Book of Tron 5000. <laughs> yeah. And it's like yeah. the most, ra- like by the numbers, like with a surprise at the end, like very pedestrian kind of a show. I Here's the thing, like I just didn't enjoy this show a whole lot because it's like the, the chamber matches were good, but I basically knew who was going to win them. I foresee the, the Miz thing happening as soon as Lashley was out there beating the shit out of him, I'm like, yeah, the Miz is definitely coming out. So it, it just was a very underwhelming show. Even though there was some good in-ring stuff, I, the show just meandered along to me, kind of. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Well, that's why we do letter grades, hey, yo. Yeah, so what do you give this one, the J? I'll give this one a C-. minus. Yeah, see, I, it, it's kind of sounded that way, but I'm gonna definitely go with a D minus on this one. And I'm not I'm, the only reason I'm not giving it an F is because the in ring stuff was definitely solid. Yeah, it brings it, it up a bit for you. Yeah, I mean, it's not the total. It's just nothing mattered. Like they did, they had two guys win an elimination chamber match, which the show was completely built around, and both of them got decimated. One of them lost a match in less than two minutes, and the other one lost their belt in thirty seconds after it dude came out and beat the shit out of him it was just like this like what did i just watch all this for yeah that's a good so it just is what it is but you know it comes to be expected with wwe that if it's not wrestlemania or like one of their absolutely major shows this is kind of what you're dealing with so we've seen this kind of thing from them for years so i I didn't know if um you wanted to mention hate you because of the j once again i take full responsibility of not catching everything um we were going to 
preview AEW's next pay-per-view. Uh, we thought it was this weekend, but it's off a little bit from what we had originally thought. Yeah, so next week on the show, we'll have the AEW preview for Revolution, uh, which is shaping up to be a pretty interesting card here early on. So we'll talk about that more next week. But we are going to take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, guys, it is time for Month of the Dragon Week 3. This week, we're going to take a look at Game of Death. <laughs> one and two this is going to be pretty interesting so stay tuned guys we'll be back right after this on the what's real podcast this is ed for churchillpictures.com churchill pictures now the unsung is available for rent and own go to churchillpictures.com and get your copy today you can also check out their previous film deference you can watch now through churchillpictures.com for all that content and much more Check out www.churchillpictures.com today. Churchill Pictures presents Deference, available now for free for subscribers on Amazon Prime. You can go to churchillpictures.com for a free flash drive with the film. All you do is pay shipping. Again, that's churchillpictures.com. Deference. Two best friends get in deep with the head of the Pittsburgh's most dangerous crime operation and are forced to choose between their friendship and their lives. Deference by Churchill Pictures, available now on Amazon Prime. And we're back here on the show, and as I mentioned, guys, it is time for week three in the month of the dragon this week, we're going to talk some game of death parts one and two. So let's just jump right on into it. The J let's go back to 1978 for game of death. This is a martial arts movie star must fake his death to find the people who are trying to kill him. Uh, now this is not your typical Bruce Lee movie. Of course, this was a movie that was, uh, they, they started shooting it in uh, 1973 and he actually had to stop making this movie because he got enter the dragon. So he went to go make enter the dragon. And of course he started working on game of death. Uh, They got approximately like a hundred minutes of footage um, before Bruce Lee uh, passed away. So years later, Robert Klaus, uh, who you guys might know uh, from the show here is uh, also the director of enter the dragon decided to put together a film of the remaining footage. Now, this was a pretty interesting movie uh, to begin with because it was to star a scene, and it's one of the most famous fight scenes of all time against Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So they used as much of the footage uh, of Bruce Lee that they could uh, as the character Billy Lowe, um, but they had a stand-in in this as well. Um, and also it should be noted that the movie takes a really, really uh, lousy kind of a look at Bruce Lee's real life funeral. Um, and it's used as the character's funeral in the movie. And it's, it, you know, it's an interesting movie, uh, but it's also a pretty bad movie. Ultimately, um, it's incredibly exploitive. Um, it has uh, one of Bruce Lee's most iconic look, which was taken for the movie Kill Bill for Uma Thurman uh, in the yellow and black jumpsuit. Um, but overall, uh, Game of Death is kind of a, a messy put together film 
um, that is ultimately uh, from a really sleazy uh, place. And the problem that I have with this movie too is, especially especially from Robert Klaus, um, it's it's a movie that basically kind of like shits on his legacy, which is weird to say. Uh, so it's a guy that worked with him nonetheless and made his most famous movie, and he ends up making something like this. I mean, it's not entirely his fault, and obviously. You know, you have to work with what you could work with. I, I guess it's better than not seeing it at all. But unfortunately, what, what we got is a very weird, uneven, disturbing at points kind of movie. Um, and it kind of makes you question if it probably ever should have been made. I think in the, the movies of the, the Western movies of Bruce Lee, this is without a doubt his worst. I mean, like you said, just completely tasteless off the bat to, to use his actual funeral for the funerals, fake the death funeral. Um, just, you know, terrible to see just crazy back then that they could even pull that off and things like that. Even with Linda, you know, Linda's wife and, and stuff, I'm, I'm sure she had major it was issues a, with that. It, it was a public event in Hong Kong that they, they did this. So they took the footage from they, well, I mean, this was, they, there was just footage of it. I've seen footage of it for years. Uh, it was just a big event there. Like the news was probably there as well. So there probably is a significant amount of footage of his funeral. Um, it just is what it is. The dude was like a national hero in Hong Kong. So, it, it, you know, it's how they do things. It is what it is. But at the same time, too, it's obviously not what the footage was for uh, to be used in a movie like this. Um, so and it's it's weird that I'm saying this. So keep this in mind because you might be surprised about something I say a little bit later uh, pertaining to it. But, okay. yeah, it's just kind of a gross move. And ultimately, the movie is just super disappointing. It's uh, you could tell there was something there. Like it's a really cool idea, like just the premise. Of yeah, and that's cool. and that's the problem. There's too much, like you said, too many issues with what happened with him stepping away and then passing away for it to even have been pulled off. But I'll kind of take f- with what it was. I mean, to to highlight the the positives of it. Hey, you know, like you mentioned, the iconic look and the the suit, which of course your boy, the big kid, as I always out myself, the J here, uh, purchased the the track suit from Bruce Lee.com, which is like an homage kind of track suit to it. You That's know, it's amazing, the, the yellow and black. <laughs> yeah. My wife's like, you look like a big bumblebee. And I'm like, I'm Bruce Lee, biatch. That's just but, spin uh, kicker. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then of course the, the fights and the, the fight choreography and, and, and the parts with Bruce Lee in it of like, you know, without yeah. the stand in and the Billy Lowe weirdness and everything and, and completely to what you said, Hey Ed, a really cool concept, almost like a, a kind of a real life video game movie before the, the popularity of video games, you know, I mean, with, with like super Mario and Nintendo popping in the mid eighties and this being from the seventies and, you know, I guess was officially 78 it's like the the plot of him making it to the tower of death as they called it and having to fight three different bosses of varying fighting styles and things like that with the lead boss being the top level of the tower of um, kareem abdul jabbar's character like so, that was a cool cool concept i don't know how deep you got into this but um I love this stuff about Bruce Lee. Okay. And I don't know if you, uh, how much of this you're familiar with at all, Uh, but there were supposed to originally be five levels to this. And it was supposed to be like this allegory that Bruce Lee wanted to do where every one of the levels they would lose to him, of course. 
And the reason would be is because they're lacking in something. And he was kind of showing that like, you know, you can be an expert at something, but the best thing is to be like knowledgeable in all things. And that's kind of the point of like, you know, nobody could beat him because he was putting together everything where they were like just the master of this or the master of that or something else. So it would have been really cool. And they had a total of five levels and he knew all the, the people that he wanted to be on each level. And it was supposed to be like this really cool concept. And it, it's kind of a shame that this is like the weird watered down version of that. Um, so maybe it helps if you don't know that going into it, but right, uh, that that's something that I definitely remember about this movie uh, nonetheless. So it's cool to see, and it's definitely, I completely understand why it's in the set. It probably should be because it is part of that legacy overall. Um, but ultimately it's probably the biggest disappointment in Bruce Lee's, you know, like the, his major catalog, uh, because of what it is. So it's pretty, it's, it's a bummer of a movie. Nonetheless, uh, it's, it's just, it's a sad story to begin with. So especially if you're a fan of Bruce Lee, it's not the easiest movie of his to get through. Again, he couldn't appropriately be in the whole thing, so that just completely throws it off. It, we're kind of almost, in a, in a way, lucky to even have positive aspects to it and, and be able to to watch it and enjoy, and enjoy portions of it because the, the climax is definitely uh, the best part. And, of course, the fight scene with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is awesome, which, once again, just shows you why Bruce Lee was a pioneer and had that vision. It almost reminded me of something that would be CGI, which I guess was his point. Like, let's get a seven-foot-tall NBA player to go up against me that's, you know, Bruce Lee was, what, five, six or whatever he was? And it yeah. just It almost looks like it's CGI or something, you know, and he, he cuts him down like a tree and – and it's just a really cool fight scene, a really cool aspect to it. So at least we get something out of it. And I didn't know if you caught what they called on this set, the Game of Death Redux. I was going to bring this up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because I watched that too. So what'd you think about that? See, I, I didn't watch this. I watched the original okay. cut of it, but I'm definitely going to check it out because I know that it's overall, it's listed as a new presentation of Lee's original Game of Death uh, footage produced by Alan Canvin. Uh, and what they did was they went through and they put in like his voice for his character and stuff like that. Yep. So uh, it's definitely like I I like to this is weird, but whenever I get these big criterion sets, uh, I go through a lot of the stuff, but I always try and find something that I can save for later. Yeah. And that's definitely something like the next time I watch that movie, that's the way I'm going to watch it. Yeah, it's cool because it's basically all of what Bruce Lee shot and just specifically the fight scenes. Yeah. So it's, yep. it's him in the tower of death with, okay. with like you said, some, ad, some added stuff to kind of spice it up. So I really enjoyed it. It's, I, you know, I wish I had the running time of that in particular, you know, the redux, but it's probably something like 20 minutes to a half hour. Okay. I got you. So that's still cool though. Really cool. So overall uh, we got a, the, the J here. You got to give us a tagline for this one. Oh, always, man. That's what we do. So the tagline of Game of Death, Bruce Lee challenges the underworld to a game of death. So it's pretty much that. Uh, as the that Jay goddamn mentioned. underworld. And uh, so as I mentioned, this one was rather disappointing. And as we do here on the show, we do the five-star rating scale. So this week, I'm going to give this one two and a half stars. Yep, right with you. Hey, yeah, great minds, as we say a lot here, two and a half from the J as well. So next up, as promised, this is Game of Death 2. Now, this one is is a lot different. Now, this is from 1981, okay? 
and this is uh, I think it's, it's Raymond Wong, I believe. Yeah, Raymond Wong. Uh, is the guy who brought this together. Um, it was he's the producer. He was the guy behind it. Who or I'm sorry, it's Raymond Chow is the producer behind it, and uh, he put together this uh, almost a decade after his death. And they used some unused footage. That's what the purpose of this was for. And it was kind of done in an interesting way. So this is much more a Bruce exploitation movie than it is a Bruce Lee film. And what that means is, for those unfamiliar, that there is a whole genre of Bruce Lee films uh, with other men playing Bruce Lee, uh, spelled differently than Bruce L-E-E. Um, and it wasn't meant to be him. It's just kind of a, a, an homage to him. He started a whole genre. That's how great this guy was. Um, and this would be one of, I think, the best examples of Bruce exploitation. they call it. Uh, and that's Game of Death 2. So check this out. In this dark tale of revenge, Bruce Lee, quote unquote, returns as Billy Lowe, whose best friend Chin Koo dies of a sudden illness. But suspicion of foul play arises when a gang tries to steal Ku's coffin at the funeral using a helicopter. When Lo's younger brother, Lo, hears about the incident, he leaves his Buddhist master to investigate the truth. His trail soon leads him to the Castle of Death, the last place Chin Ku was seen alive. There he meets and befriends an ally, a cruel and merciless martial arts expert who is also the tower's master. Though when the master dies under mysterious circumstances, Lowe ends up dueling with someone far more terrifying. So this movie is only the, the this is the Bruce Lee involvement. Okay, um, he's a character that dies uh, actually in the movie, and his brother, uh, as they mentioned, as I mentioned earlier here, uh, comes back to basically get revenge. So, uh, and the storyline is that uh, Billy Lowe had created this martial art that could be used to pretty much beat anybody. And his brother had to learn. He wanted his brother to learn this. So his brother learns it after his death and decides to go on a quest to figure out what happened. And what you get is one of the most awesome fucking movies. If you can put aside the fact that it's not Bruce Lee and you're seeing something just kind of made in Bruce Lee's shadow as kind of an homage to Bruce Lee, this movie is fucking awesome. It's so much fun. Dude, you get the lion fight. That's something yeah. that I remembered that I purposely didn't tell you because I knew you were going to fucking crack Me up and my about. thing for lions. Yeah, yes. That that was the great perspective of the J. Hey, Ed. And I mentioned to you right before we went on the air that uh, I, when we went into this, I was trying to think if I had seen this before. I knew it had been forever. I could barely remember it. And 100%, I had never seen Game of Death 2 before. So I watched it for the first time. So that was a cool aspect for me personally within the box set to get to a, a film that I haven't seen yet of yeah. quote unquote, quote unquote, Bruce Lee's in this. But but like you said, it's like any original thing for the plethora of Bruce exploitation films that would come after this. This was like basically the original, as we're saying. And yep. as with any original, you know, the, the original is always usually the one that starts things for a reason. And that's kind of exactly what you're summing up, I think. And And like you said, if you could just put aside the fact that this is no longer Bruce Lee, but it's something kind of under his umbrella with, with, as we kind of mentioned, it has that Shaw brothers meets James Bond style still, yep. you know, with using, of course, every 
clip of Bruce Lee under the sun that they could fit in there in the dubbing. Yep. But but yeah, just a cool just a cool experience to check it out. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, dude, the fight with the lion is fun. That's yeah, it was amazing. The 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 secondary uh, guy who's you know like the the other martial arts master. You know what I'm saying? The guy oh, yeah, who's yeah. you know what I mean? Who in, in his death scene is insane. They basically <laughs> yeah. like hang this dude like with a noose up on the fucking ceiling and stab him, and it's pretty crazy looking in the movie now. These were movies essentially made to play to American audiences and to take, you know, total advantage of the Bruce Lee market overseas. So this is a movie that most likely would have played in grindhouses all around the country uh, at the time uh, because Kung Fu movies were still a big ticket in areas like that. So, um, you know, this is something that I guarantee you did well in that regard. And this would be a great movie to see with an audience nonetheless. Um, Yeah. But it's, dude, it's just a lot of fun. I liked it a lot. It's, it felt like, you know what? Uh, the, the the first one felt like it was trying to deceive you and trick yeah, you. Yeah, this one kind of goes with it. Yeah, and this one doesn't. It's like, you know what's going on. Like, you know Bruce Lee's not alive anymore. You know, this isn't some fucking thing. It just has some footage of Bruce Lee in it. And it has a movie made in the vein of Bruce Lee movies. And it's a lot of fucking fun. And it's definitely a winner for me. And it's it's one of the most fun experiences because I'd seen this before as Tower of Death. And I wasn't sure if it was the same thing or not, but the lion fight brought it all back to me. Uh, I like this movie a lot, man. Uh, so the J on this one, do you got a, a tagline for us on this one? Carrying on the legend. There you go. So as we do here on the show on the five star rating scale, what did you give this one, the J? Going a solid three on this one. Hey, you I went with four. Uh, oh, I nice. like this one a lot. Um, I definitely would recommend it. Like I said, I could get past the Bruce Lee stuff, so it doesn't bother me a whole lot. So I'm good with that. Uh, definitely, this one is a winner for me. Now, next week here on the show is, as you know, the final week of the Month of the Dragon. And uh, we are going to be doing this one up a big time. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, It's also going to be kind of a bummer, too, because it's been really fun to do all this. Um, But it's going to be our last week. And what that means is we're going to be taking a look at some documentaries that are part of the Criterion Collection, uh, Bruce Lee's Greatest Hits set. Uh, That includes Blood and Steel, uh, a 2004 documentary about the making of Enter the Dragon. Um, Also, there is one about Bruce Lee's uh, life and his own philosophies called Bruce Lee, the Man of the Legend from 1973 and 1998's Bruce Lee in his own words. Um, We'll also have a little bit more of a discussion about Bruce Lee and his life and stuff as well to kind of round everything out. Um, But yeah, man, it's been a lot of fun doing this and it's going to be a bummer when it's over, but it sure is going to be a lot of fun getting to that point. Yeah, that's what's great about the collector being the collectors we are, hate yo, and owning the Criterion Collection. It's the entire history of Bruce Lee's film legacy, all in one place that we'll have for life. So you know, we'll definitely be able to visit this, um, you know, years down the road. And it's an amazing set. And like you said, we'll we'll break it down. We're still not over yet, so that's what I'm clinging on to. Because again, I've been on a documentary kick, so I'm looking really forward to the the docs aspects and parts of this 
And if you're curious to like how much stuff is on the set, like just think of it this way. It's going to take us a month to get to this whole thing on the show. Um, it's listed because I have it next to me here, dude. This thing's listed at 506 total minutes. So awesome. there's a ton of stuff on there. If you're a Bruce Lee fan, definitely recommend picking it up. Uh, and we're going to pick it up again next week right here on the show as far as Bruce Lee uh, goes because we're having a blast doing it. So we hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are. But we got to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap up the show. The Jay's going to get into some goofs. And uh, and then we're going to get the hell on out of here. So thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Cut and Run Studios is a multimedia facility that specializes in video production and photography. In the internet era, visual communication is the most powerful tool for storytelling. We believe it is our job to deliver the most compelling visual interpretation of a message and provide all the necessary capabilities in-house so that we can cover every angle of your story. Our production facility is at 1532 Beachview Avenue, Pittsburgh, PA, 15216. Check us out at CutAndRunStudios.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Geeks. And we're back, and uh, the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? As we consistently say here on the podcast, hey, yeah, never lacking in goofs and goofy stories, which starts with, here on episode 59 of the What's Real Podcast, the miracle puppy skipper, hey, yeah. Why is he the miracle puppy skipper? He's a puppy dog, really cute, but he, he was born with six legs. Jesus. Yeah. So the six legs puppy, uh, he's doing surprisingly well. And here's a very good girl with a little extra pep in her steps being born with six legs. But veterinarians say the pooch is miraculously beating the odds. The newborn Aussie border collie mix named Miracle, but who also goes by Skipper, was born in Oklahoma City and taken to a vet after she was rejected by her mom. Poor thing. Vets at Neal Veterinary Hospital say she's nothing short of a miracle because she survived longer than expected. The pup was four days old at the time the pick here on TMZ was taken. And get this, hey, uh, the vets say Skipper has duplicate organs basically from her waist down and they're all functioning. There's no published research showing another dog with this condition born alive. So the skipper, the six-legged dog, welcome to 2021. Jesus. Yeah, I was not <laughs> expecting that. Yeah, what, what can you say to that one? Hey, y'all. I could say a lot uh, of things that I'm not going to say. <laughs> yeah. Something you're uh, personally more um, in tune with here is our man that we grew up with from the NWA and beyond, Dr. Dre himself. As he trashes his estranged wife in a new song, calls her greedy bitch. <laughs> He's letting yeah, his frustrations like out over his pending divorce. Hey, yo. Hey, it, as long as he ain't beating up women like D Barnes anymore, then that's probably a good thing for him. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah. A, yeah. New, a new track was previewed Monday night by DJ Silk, which features Dre and Aftermath pal King Crooked. Dre drops some explicit lyrics about his estranged wife and their nasty divorce proceedings. As he says, trying to kill me with them lies and that perjury. I see you trying to fuck me while I'm in surgery. <laughs> and I see you deathbed on some money shit. Greedy bitch, take a pick. Girl, you know how money get. Dude. Oh, my God. Okay. So I didn't realize that all it got for, for Dre to drop some new music was he had to get a fucking divorce. Cause like <laughs> yeah. 
Motherfucker, we were waiting 20 years for fucking D. We're still waiting for the Detox album. (laughs) That shit's supposed to come out in 1996. So, like, bro, like, whatever. Just put out some fucking music or something that's worthwhile, please. Otherwise, I'm not trying to hear about your divorce. Next on the Goose or Goose for episode 59, we already kind of covered. We had El Chapo's wife, Emma Coronel Esporo, on here because, I mean, how much bigger of a goof can you be just to take over hubby's nefarious, you know, criminal empire. Uh, but a later, a late update. Hey, Ed here. Uh, so I figured it was worth bringing up again, just to round out the show. Uh, she's not going to be getting sprung anytime soon amid new criminal charges, adding to the one she's already facing here in the U S. So a judge just denied her bond. So that's breaking news. She's just going to escape just like her husband. Yeah, exactly. In a, in a cavern. Like fuck yeah, like here it's already set up. Like she's priority back in Mexico. And all I gotta say, because we don't talk uh, politics as little politics as we can, and I don't care what party you are or anything else, but the goof of the year already. I'm just gonna say, fuck Ted Cruz. <laughs> this fucking goof. <laughs> this goddamn dude looks like a goddamn like three gallons of mayonnaise in a sock. <laughs> yeah. That's how he's built like a fucking, like a gut, like a lotion and a tissue. Just fucking terrible mess of a human being. Not many more out there that define the word goof like that goof. But as I say to my bro from another Mo, between a puppy with six legs and fully functioning double organs, to Dr. Dre trashing his estranged ex-wife with lyrics, to El Chapo's crazy goofy wife, fuck Ted Cruz, goofs are Our goofs. goofs. So that's it for us this week, guys. Hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, if you did and you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to give us a five-star review. Helps get some more eyes and ears on the program each and every week. Of course, you can listen to us on all your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and, of course, every week on ChurchillPictures.com. So uh, I'm ready to get out of here, but I hear the J revving it up. So the J, keep on revving away, brother. Revving it up like Blue Demon Jr. refusing to unmask. Hey, y'all. Yeah, another great show, man. We're about to hit the big 6-0 next week. So stay tuned, everybody. As we always say, if you're here hearing my voice, we appreciate you. Thanks for all the support. We just have a blast. Hopefully you're along on the Steve McQueen in it that we do from week to week, the great escape here on the What's World podcast and going into Hey, Jared and Cam's world as bringing that up. The usual shout out to the wizard behind the boards, our producer, Cam. Thanks for what you do, Cam. Always making a sound crystal clear. And, you know, with Skipper being six legs, we're on that 8K sound shit with Cam, the wizard behind the boards. From my brother from another mother, hate you. Love spending the time with you, man. Always a blast doing this Tuesday nights. Love doing it every time, every week, having a blast. As we say there, every week, especially this week, in these days and times, stay safe, stay healthy. You'll hear the J next week. So that is it for us this week on episode 59. Join us next week for episode 60, where we're going to be doing a preview of AEW Revolution. And of course, we're going to look at Bruce Lee's life and times through some documentaries and much, much more. Uh, And that's it for us this week. So obviously the J, thanks brother for sitting down uh, with me as we do here each and every week, man. I really appreciate it. I do enjoy it. And there's nobody else I'd rather do it with. And shout out to the wizard behind the boards, because as you know, nobody beats the whiz. Cam, 
appreciate all the work you put into the show each and every week. And I appreciate each and every one of you guys who listen to us here on the show each and every week. So that's it for us, guys. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you right here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?